This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Disaster Brothers, Josh and Andrew. Hello there and welcome to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Today on the show, we head to the United States to talk about Community Emergency Response Teams, or CERT for short, and how they form a part of the disaster landscape. Andrew, who are we speaking with today? On the show today, Josh, we have Linda Barger and Phil Amtower. Phil is the Director of Emergency Management for the Christian County in Missouri, and Linda is the Assistant Program Administrator for the CERT program in the region. They train members of the community in emergency response so they can be better prepared for disasters. In 2011, the CERT team were deployed for months to Joplin, Missouri, after one of the deadliest tornadoes in US history. We'll talk more about the tornado and how it has shaped Joplin today. We'll also understand how the CERT program operates, how it works within communities and supports the response, and chat about the tricky subject of spontaneous volunteers in disasters. Let's head to Missouri and get started. That there's been damage in multiple locations, including at one of the office buildings. Linda and Phil, thanks for joining us on the show today. What's it like living in the center of Tornado Alley? It's not quite as bad as living in earthquake country. Um, at, at least we have, you know, a, a little bit of warning. But, you know, years ago, it was a lot scarier than what it, it, it is now. Technology has done so much for us to give us advanced warning and you know, usually we know the day ahead of time if, if severe storms are possible. So it does give us some preparation time. Um, not quite as much as a hurricane, but, you know, uh, it does lend itself these days to, uh, to being a lot better than what it was. Here in Australia, it's um, it's a little bit probably odd for us. Um, you know, tornadoes uh, are rare, but they do happen. Um, in our hometown in Kaima, uh, in 2013, we were affected by three that moved through the region. Uh, and then later, uh, there was one that moved through the south of Sydney. But for our listeners that uh, may not be across um, tornadoes and, and, and what it's like or, or how they work or or um, how they are in the community. Can you just take us through what would that look like? I mean, is the community aware of, uh, are they well-versed in what happens in a tornado? Is it something that's just part of everyday life? Um, or is it something that's a surprise? You were just saying around the uh, the warnings and that you, you get some, some sort of warning, but just for our listeners, just help them understand what that looks like when a tornado is coming in. Yeah, that, that's been, um, you know, one of the, the topics that we work on all the time is communication and warning. In in Joplin, well, we, we kind of call it the boy that cried wolf syndrome. That day there were a couple warnings that nothing happened. And then when that come, when come out, folks just thought, well, that's just another 
you know, a big cloud coming and, and they didn't worry about it. Uh, we have that problem a lot. A lot of communities have tornado warning sirens. We have all sorts of um, warnings that come over your cell phones now. Our county here, we have our own mass notification system where people can subscribe to watches and warnings. So you're driving along and it, it's location-based. So if there's a tornado warning that, and you're in that warned area, you're going to get that alert. So we we really push and, and try to prepare the public. Sometimes that hurts us because we do it too much. But Mother Nature is going to do what she wants to do. We could have a tornado warning 10 times in a row, and that funnel never comes down. But the next time might be an F5. So it's it's not an exact science, and that really hurts us sometimes. It's that's a really interesting concept because I know in Australia we've been um, looking at a phenomenon what we see is what we call sunny day flooding. So out in the west um, we have you know heavy rainfall you know three four hundred kilometres away, but when that gets into the river system it causes mass overland um, flooding. But you know you may be in a community it may be blue skies, um, but hey the river's flooding and it's a really hard concept to to get across to some communities and there's a lot of research that's happening in Australia around you know, how can we um, better structure warnings? How can we better communicate with our communities to get that that risk across to people? What have you guys done in that space around um, obviously the issue of the, you know, the boy who cried wolf? What have you guys been doing in that warning space to try and um, negate some of that complacency that individuals may have when they receive multiple warnings? Yeah, that, that, was, that was a huge topic after Joplin. And NOAA, our national organization, did uh, – a lot of studies and some of that has has been released but we we found out that people they have to get the warning from several different sources and they have to perceive that threat on a personal level before they take action that's the dilemma there's folks around here that have never even though they've lived here all their lives, they've never been affected by a tornado. So it doesn't hit home quite as well for them. But we've talked about folks that have been through three and four. And those folks, I guarantee you, when there's a warning comes out, they're going to take action. One thing that's been um, new for us that we have to constantly work on, and that's the social media aspect of it. We have a, an um, program called SWIFT 911 that we send out messages if you're in the path. Uh, it's on the radio, it's on the TV. Social media, people will get on there and say, oh, well, how do I sign up? And they're asking this while the sirens are going off. You know, that is not the time. So it's a constant, constant educating people um, that you don't wait till it's here to ask for the help. You know, you don't wait till it's here to say, oh, yeah, where do I sign up for that alert system? And that is a constant challenge because when we have a tornado warning coming out, Facebook, our Facebook page will explode with people wanting details and, well, where's it at now? Well, we do not have the staff to monitor that 24-7. We do the best that we can, uh, but that's where people, that's kind of our weak link right now is uh, building up the social media because that's where a lot of people want to go to to get that information. 
even though it would be much easier to sign up for those alerts through the county, you know, and get it as it comes out. It's certainly something that's an unusual concept for us, as Josh mentioned earlier. And in the few instances where I've seen supercell warnings or tornado warnings in Australia, it's it's very rare and it certainly panics people. But you guys have lived through a, quite a few of these events. Um can you describe what it's like being in a tornado? Like, what, what do you smell? What do you see? Um, what do you hear? How, how does that impact when it comes through um, your area? Most people describe it as a, a train. I have a picture of a tornado that I took in 2003. And the thing I remember most was the hair on the back of my neck standing up <laughs> and the goosebumps I got. Because I was just so awestruck by the power and might of this cloud and, and the destruction it was doing. And you you never forget that. So is it just like the movies and Twister and those sort of movies where these massive <laughs> thing comes through and it's just a really scary scene? Yeah, I, I've never seen a cow fly across the hood. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, uh, like I said, you, you just have to – See it in person, you know, just kind of like a flood. It's hard to describe mm-hmm. that wall of water coming down and the destruction mm-hmm. until you there and you can see and feel it. And then the opposite of that is after it comes through, sometimes there's just this complete calm. And it's like you don't hear anything. It's just complete silence. It's very eerie, very eerie feeling. Uh, and then everything kicks in. You know, what do you need to be doing? Where do I need to be right now? What do I need to be taking care of? So you have that like this explosion after the tornado with the tornado, and then and then it's just quiet. Well, it's such a yeah, such an odd. I mean, just unusual thing for what we're used to here in Australia. I think um, we'll talk more about tornadoes shortly, and uh, in particular your response to the Joplin tornado. But first, um, I wanted to talk about the SOAP program. Phil, what prompted you to start the program, and how has it changed over time? Well, we actually started in, in 2003, and January 1st, 2003, I was hired full-time as the emergency management director, and three months later, we had an F3 tornado. I learned a lot, that first tornado. I was the only man in the office. I didn't have any volunteers, and my first lesson was there's a lot to do. Really, the easy part of the tornado is that first few hours of response is here all the firemen and um, first responders come they take care of everybody get everybody out get them to the hospital the hard part is the second day all through the long-term recovery you have folks that are homeless you have folks that want to come and help being a one-man show at that time was really difficult i had a few amateur radio guys that helped out. They helped me do damage assessment and they helped me corral some of the emergent volunteers. But that was my big lesson. And then the fall of that year, our federal government put out this CERT program and I read about it and they were offering some grants to get it started. And I thought, hey, this is... I think this will be a good thing. So October, we had our first class, and it's kind of grown from there. We're a rural county, and so we have about a population of about 90,000. We don't have a hospital in our county. 
So if there are injuries, having the SERP program allows us to train people to help with that first response, even in the medical aspect of it. Yeah, and the whole part of the CERT program is to make people more self-sufficient. And then if they want to help us after and they want to sign up to be a volunteer, great. But if these folks come in and they take the class and I never see them again, I'm not that disappointed because I know I have folks out there that are better prepared. They're not going to call 911 for a broken finger when that ambulance needs to be transporting somebody with a head injury. So the more that we can get this class out there, the better prepared my community is. A lot of our listeners may not be really across what a, um, a CERT team is. Can you help us understand what does a CERT team do? What's their capability? And if I was to come and say, Phil, I want to join in a CERT team, what, what am I going to have to do? Or what, what, do I, what process do I go through to, to become part of a CERT team? So we're going to be having a class in the fall, and uh, we love having our CERT classes. We see a big transition in people when they come to CERT. So CERT is a 24-hour class. We usually offer it on a Friday evening and two all-day Saturdays, and you'll be introduced to disasters. So we'll talk about all of our local disasters, and it's tornadoes and floods, and we have a little bit of everything here. And then um, you'll go through nine classes, everything from a search and rescue class. You'll have two different medical classes that are offered. But we have um, we talk about terrorism, and not that we would be involved in terrorism activities, but we want them to be aware of what they need to be looking for, um, if they should spot something, if they're on vacation. You know, we want them to be educated. We feel like knowledge is power. And the more they know, the better they're going to be able to take care of themselves and their families. So the SER program will introduce them to several different levels. There's a fire suppression class. You know, they're going to learn all about fire safety. Um, what is, search and rescue. Yeah, we do the search and rescue. Um, so they're going to have that capability. What's interesting is somebody will come into the class and they'll find something that really interests them. And so we have had several that would pass out during the medical class because they can't handle the videos or the pictures of blood. But then they'll go on to become EMTs and paramedics because that also taught them that they might have a gift there that they were not aware of. So we have had several that have gone through the CERT class who have gone on to pursue medical fields. We have some that have gone on to be firefighters. We have some that have gone on to be in law enforcement. So the CERT program is just one avenue to build a force of first responders in the county for us. So most of our volunteers, one way or another, have been affected by some disaster that we've had in the county. Either they have been or their family have been or their neighbor has been. So they have that buy-in. You know, it's not just, oh yeah, I'll go be a volunteer. They know what it's like to survive and to live through some form of a disaster. And they want to know what to do. And they're good at it. And I don't know what we would do without them because they always step up when we need them. Phil and Linda, you're probably aware of uh, d- the Australian disaster landscape, especially over the, the summer that we've just experienced, uh, a black summer. 
And there was a real understanding for our emergency sector around how do we actually ensure that we have enough capability and capacity uh, to handle these events. And I feel that the CERT teams are a really great example about how we harness capacity and capability uh, in our communities. Can you take us through um, what that means for you and why you went down the road of harnessing communities rather than professionalise emergency services? Well, like right now in our community, here in, our, in this one town, we have two engine companies with fire, four firefighters on board. We have two ambulances in the town right now. There's 17, 18,000 folks. So normally that's okay on a day-to-day basis. Now, there are some times when there's two fires going at the same time. So we might have four different fire departments coming into this town to help with the fire response. But if you have a tornado go through and you have 60, 70 people that are hurt, two ambulances not even close. And we have to draw from all around to get those units here. So there, there the CERT program helps two ways. If, um, if you have a broken arm, you can deal with that. It's, it's, it hurts, yes, but if you know how to splint it and then maybe go to the hospital an hour or two later and not call an ambulance, the guy over here that has a two before sticking out of his chest, he's going to get the ambulance. And then I already always give the example to my CERT classes. If, if you live on a cul-de-sac, there's 15 houses in your neighborhood, and tornado goes through, what is going to happen is the fire companies are going to come down and they're going to check every house. If there's any damage, they're going to go in and see if anybody's in there hurt. And it's going to take time to check everybody. Now, you as a CERT member, you live in that neighborhood, you go and check all those houses. Turn the gas off if you need to be. Check on everybody. Put out a small fire. When that engine company pulls up to your neighborhood, you meet it out there and you say, hey, I'm Joe with the CERT department. I have checked everybody in the neighborhood. We're all good. That engine company can move on to the next street and take care of things that are more important. Uh, guys, I just want to take you back to 2011, the city of Joplin, uh, which was severely impacted by an EF5 tornado, one of the deadliest tornadoes in U.S. history, with 158 people killed. For listeners who might not have heard of Joplin before, it was once the zinc and lead mining capital of the world and is today home to 50,000 people. Linda and Phil, can you take us back to that day um, when you deployed your CERT teams into Joplin? So we were there within the first 24 hours. There were actually only three of us went um, the first trip down. Um, We were asked to come and assist, but we wanted to go down and see exactly where we could fit in. Because for us, when we go, we want to go for a purpose. Uh, And we knew a lot of people were coming in from all over the world to help. Um, The first organization we worked with was with American Red Cross. And, you know, because so many people lost their homes, uh, we had set up a shelter at the university. Uh, The second night there, over 300 people, we had to evacuate them out of the shelter to a safer spot because the tornado sirens were going off again. So after that, we came back home. Uh, I think we sent out an email like at four o'clock saying, if you can go to Joplin, 
meet us in the office. Well, we have a very small office. We had like 72 people show up that night. Wow. So the very next day we headed to Joplin and we were part of the search and rescue teams there. We went out into the field. It was actually one of our teams that found um, Mrs. Hale, one of the very last people who were found uh, deceased. Uh, her daughter had flown in from New York. She was talking to her mom on the phone when it actually happened. And um, she flew in and she's like, please, you know, please help us. Don't give up. Keep trying to find her. And it was because of the CERT team that went out and was diligent. And they knew something wasn't right. You know, when he was like, oh, no, we've already searched that area. The dogs have been there. But one of our uh, volunteers was a military, ex-military. And he's like, I'm telling you, there's something here. And sure enough, because of his determination, uh, they were able to find her and for her family. To this day, they will call us every once in a while and just thank us you know and so that's pretty um that's pretty impactful for a certain volunteer to hear we were given this list to find it took us nine days we spent the next nine days going out every day we had 97 cert volunteers that went with us and um they divided up into groups and we would map it out and send them to different zones and at the end of each day we found more that was missing now some the missing uh, were deceased. Some, they had been moved to hospitals in another state, but at least there were answers as to where they were. So our CERT team was able to uh, do that. And that was probably the most proudest I've ever been of, of a group of people. We had never done anything like this before. We had to make our own processes and protocols. We learned as we went. As you can imagine, there were some folks that didn't want to be found maybe an estranged wife that was trying to keep away from her husband. So we might find her and say, hey, Joe Smith is looking for you. And she'd say, oh, I do not want to be found. Seems like we started out to do something that day, and we always had to adjust and figure out something else. But when it was all over, we found every one of those folks. Well, we found all but seven. And then we found out that the seven we didn't find were actually missing criminals. So we were glad we didn't find them. <laughs> um, we came home after that for maybe a couple of days, and our CERT teams was like, we're not done. We have to go back. There's too much work that has to be done. And so after that portion, we went to the city of Duquesne, which is right outside of Joplin. Uh, and Phil met, we met with the city officials, and he says, give us a space. Give us something that we can make a difference. From beginning to end, we will take care of this for you. And without a doubt, they mentioned this gentleman's name, Frank. Uh, he, he lived in the core of the city. He owned 33 acres there, still had a farm, had 50 cattle. They all had names. I mean, it was a farm that had been there. He, you know, he was 70, 80 some years old. Uh, we ended up undertaking his property. He lost his barn, his farm. He lost everything. He was lucky to be alive. We spent the next several months going in and cleaning his property. Because his property was in the core of the city, they felt like if people could see hope, if they could see that things are progressing instead of living in the disaster field all the time, and it worked because we were able to get that property taken care of, and it was a hot, hot summer that year. And the certs came out and worked from early morning to late at night. Some of us just lived there on the property uh, in our trailer, and... um, Some drove back and forth every day 
And we would say, you know, that you can stay here. You don't have to drive back and forth. And they'd say, no, that's the time I need to cry on the way home. <laughs> they needed to get all of that out of their system so they could come back the next day. They had to walk away. I just want to pick up on a really interesting comment you made there, um, Phil, around, uh, you know, how you went and engaged the officials. I think something that some individuals don't forget is uh, well, they do forget is that in emergencies, um, it's a highly bureaucratic um, space to operate in, especially at the government level. And, and, you know, you look at that local government areas. And I loved how you, you said, you, you know, you went in there and you engaged there. For people who have maybe started community groups uh, who are listening to this, can you give them some tips around how you actually start those conversations and how do you engage with government to, I guess, get yourself in that space and, and give yourself credibility and, uh, in a sense, give yourself a ticket to get in there and actually help? We have an issue sometimes of, you know, folks here see the CERT program and you see how well it is. They they decide that they're going to start a CERT program, a program over here and just their community or neighborhood, and they don't become part of the system. And sometimes those type of groups that are, we call them friend groups, or the, you know, they went out on their own and they've decided that they can do it better than us. And <laughs> they, they make it a little more difficult. Um, I would imagine you have them everywhere, not just here, but it takes, it takes a long time to build up credibility. And when we went to Duquesne, it, those folks didn't know us from Adam and you, you just have to uh, convince them. You've got to figure out some way you, you don't want to be a, I know it all and I can do this and I can do that. One of my things that I, I teach our cert folks is under promise over deliver. Don't promise somebody the world. And then if you fall short, it doesn't matter what it is. That's the only thing they're going to remember. But if you say, well, I'm going to try to cut that tree down. I don't think I can get it all. But then they come back the next day and that tree's totally gone. That, that will stick in their mind that you did more than what you said you were going to do. I don't know how we managed to convince the, the city leaders there, but we did. And once they saw us working, uh, it took us longer to convince the homeowner, Frank. And his family. Yes. They were very skeptical because they thought we were going to get a bill. And he would say, how much is this going to cost me? What are you going to charge me? And we'd say, Frank, we are here to help you. We're not going to charge you a dime. Now, we did have to have some paperwork signed just saying that if we got hurt on his property or, you know, and he, well, my son says my lawyer needs to look at all of this. And so you do what you need to do. But you know what? In the meantime, we're just going to start picking up some of this trash. Now, Phil wasn't kidding. There were semi-truck beds in Frank's farm. And uh, he'd say, I'd say, now, where did you have those? Well, those are mine. I don't know where those came from. <laughs> and so we started negotiating with um, other companies that were working and tearing down buildings. We'd see, he'd say, hey, can we have those trailers? It's like, well, guess what? We talked to Frank. Always, always consult with Frank. Um, 
if you can have that, if you'll give us two hours of your bulldozer to knock down a house, you know. So you get into this negotiating thing of I'll help you, you help me, and we all get to accomplish the goals that we have set. Yeah, as a cert team, we have no equipment. <laughs> we have no money, no equipment. So <laughs> Linda, Linda's negotiating skills doubled that year. <laughs> but and it was true. There was a lot of folks that were – they were there to get the metal. They wanted the metal recycling because they're going to take that somewhere and get paid for it. And so she she would say, yeah, sure, you can have all this metal, but we get to use that backhoe for the next three hours. And I would be a little skeptical, but, you know, three hours operator time compared to all the money that they were getting for the metal recycling was a good deal. So adapt and overcome. And speaking of adapting and overcoming, um, you've described before that the spontaneous volunteers or emergent volunteers that you had turn up to Joplin with the second disaster. I mean, spontaneous volunteers, in my mind, can offer so many benefits and help generate that new workforce of people to help. But how did you find spontaneous volunteers um, when they turned up? And describe what what the, I guess, how, how it all worked. How many people do you have turn up and where do they come from? And for those of us who work in other emergencies around the world, what would you do next time differently and how do we prepare now for future instances of huge outpouring of spontaneous volunteers in communities? Yeah, it was definitely the second disaster. There were thousands of people that came and this was pretty much broadcast live on the Weather Channel. And I, I think 95% of America saw it because 85% came. Um, and then, you know, we always, we also had all these professional responders coming as far away as St. Louis, which is 300 and some miles, Kansas City, which is 200 miles, Oklahoma City. Uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, you have all these professional folks coming that are helping with the search and rescue. Now all your motel rooms is taken up by emergent volunteers. So these guys don't have anywhere to stay. So they're sleeping on truck beds, out in the rain, uh, in the cab or in tents. So that was one issue of putting up lodging for the folks that really needed it. And then all these folks got to eat somewhere. And that was another issue. Then they're getting in the way. They're parking cars where they shouldn't be. The fire trucks can't get through. You're several times we had storms afterwards. Um, if you have the paid guys out there all have radios, you can get them and say, hey, there's a storm coming. Get back in. We had, what, two people killed by lightning? Mm-hmm so much metal laying around and lightning was a really big danger but all those emergent volunteers you can't get a hold of them and they want to do well and they're there for a good reason but unless it's a coordinated effort it really hampers the total response I'd really love to now unpack for the city of Joplin and and we've seen it here and Andrew and I kind of refer to it as the twilight zone. It's that zone between impact and then recovery. It's this real odd kind of quasi period where people are still doing a little bit of response, but people are still moving into that recovery area. Can you explain what that looks like for Joplin 
And what role did CERT play in that? Does does CERT play a role in the recovery space? The core folks, the core group of people that worked on the recovery were FEMA and those city officials and the state officials. They had so many folks, and there was a, a whole incident command structure for the recovery, just like there was for the response. And hundreds of people were on this committee, and they really fought it through. You know, their city was devastated. We have right now an opportunity to build this back the way we want it, bigger and better. And, and I think they did that. Um, it's really hard to go into a disaster situation and then you just walk away from it. Um, for us, we were very fortunate because we were close to Joplin. We were there the first day. We were able to help with search and rescue. We were able to help with recovery. Um, in the fall, I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show um, Extreme Makeover, where they go in and build this house. And you know, Well, they did that in Joplin. They built seven houses in seven days. And we were invited to come and be a part of that to help organize other volunteers that were coming in. And so for us, I felt like we went full circle. We were there the day after and we saw Joplin at its worst. And then our volunteers were able to be a part of the recovery and then a part of the rebuild. And that psychologically is huge for your volunteers because they've got to have a way to process what they've seen, what they've done. It sounds like a lot has changed in Joplin since the tornado. Can you describe what Joplin's like today? No trees. Um, <laughs> that's Joplin had a lot of trees. Just some places lying in the streets, and all that's gone. You know, you have brand new buildings back. It, it looks great, but when I drive through that area of town, the thing that strikes me the most the absence of trees. They made some parks to commemorate, and there for a while they had um, annual events that uh, kind of marked the anniversary. I think they've gotten away from those. Yeah, and of course they lost a hospital. So the hospital, after it was demolished, is now a huge, huge memorial uh, for the city. It's a park. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. So, yeah. So in terms of um, socially for the community, what does Joplin look like today? I know when we were having some discussions last week, we were talking about how, you know, events can change people for the better. You know, it might bring the, bring more awareness to, to what the risks are around them. Has there been a change in Joplin in the community around what risks mean for them or, or what tornadoes mean for them and, and how they need to change their everyday behaviour? Mm-hmm. Well... <laughs> We as humans, we're, we're a strange bunch. Um, our, our attention span is just not that long, you know, I, I, and I am sure you folks can attest to this also that a big disaster happens. And for the next couple of years, we are all on board to do everything right the way we need to. And then as time goes by, we kind of backslide in our old ways and, I think that's kind of where we're at now. It's been a while since this happened, but if you were going to do a, a survey in Joplin, I guarantee you there are 200 times more tornado shelters than there were. And, and I mean individual shelters in people's houses or in the backyard underground. They've um, a whole new tornado warning siren. 
think all the schools now have tornado shelters built into their facility. So we're a lot better prepared, mostly infrastructure-wise. But like I said, us, us humans, we tend to forget. <laughs> and it's our job as EMA people to keep that on their mind somehow. And sometimes it takes a disaster to get us back on track. It's sad to say, but. It sounds like Joplin was just this amazing outpouring of, you know, community spirit coming in to help. They saw the need. And it sounds like it was really fundamental for for your team, your CERT teams. What are the key lessons that you took away from Joplin for your CERT program? Or, um, you know, what are those major changes that have happened in your minds around how you would do things differently next time? Not so much that we'd do it again, but one of the benefits is all these CERT volunteers knew each other ahead of time. We try to come up with as many things as we can for them to do, even if it's not non-disaster times. So they get to know each other and they're on a first name basis. And you learn about other folks. You know, everybody there in my CERT team knows that I love Dr. Pepper. So, <laughs> you know, they know to bring that. And I know that uh, other people don't like Dr. Pepper. So when you go on a disaster, you know all these things about the other folks. There's some people you might want to avoid, but at least you know that ahead of time. And you work better as a team that way. We are big on training together. And we meet once a month. Now, it's, that's been on the back burner with COVID going on. But we always meet once a month. We have a meeting. And you might have a newbie that says, well, do I really need to be at the meeting? And we'll say, yeah, you do. Because everybody that came to Joplin had either been in a class together, had uh, deployed together on another event, or had exercised together. And that's what makes, I think, our team so great is that they all know each other. I guarantee you, all of our instructors right now, uh, because they like to bribe us, they know to bring me chocolate and him, Dr. Pepper, and we're good. And I know the same with them. Now, I don't have a great memory, so I have my list. You know, Cassie likes this, and somebody else likes this. And um, because we we return that favor to them when we know we're going to have them uh, on board with us. It sounds like really looking after volunteers is the key lesson here. I mean, just looking after your volunteers, looking after your members and supporting them is how we get through these major events and how we move forward. And I'm certainly, when Josh and I come to America to visit you guys, we'll pack the chocolate and Dr. Pepper, so we've got something for you. (laughs) Well, and let me tell you a quick story, too, about um, our Frank. I mean, I can't say enough about this man. He is since deceased. Um, But, you know, while we're working, this was a farm that had been in his family his whole 80-some years. Um, his grandfather had built the house that the tornado destroyed that was all rock. Um, you know, we had made this negotiation. We knew the house was going to have to come down. But Frank had some very important things that to him that, well, will you try to find my coin collection? Will you try to find my wife's this or that? You know, so we tried to clear out the house as much as we could for him. But the day came, we were very excited. I'm very driven to get the job done on schedule um the day came that it was time for the house to come down and we had negotiated with uh one of the gentlemen who had a a dozer or whatever he was going to use he says i'll be there at nine o'clock in the morning we're ready we're excited we're going to get this done frank comes up to me and says 
I'm not ready. And I'm like, well, what do you mean you're not ready? You know, I'm like, we've got this free service. We've got to get this house torn down. And he's like, I'm not ready, Linda. He goes, that's the only house I ever lived in with my wife. That's where I raised my kid. That's where my, you know, and we had to stop everything. I mean, everything came to a halt because the most important thing was Frank had been through enough and we were not going to add to that stress. And so it was really hard for some of the volunteers. It's like, well, wait, you know, we had been building up to this. And and we had to stop because that's what Frank needed was for us to stop. He was not ready to visually see that house brought down. And so um, we're like, okay, well, this is what we have to do. And and the guy said, it's like, give us your phone number, we'll call you. You know, but we didn't know if we would get that opportunity again. And we can't have volunteers to start tearing down a house. So I'm not sure what happened. We had plenty of other things to do. We took care of business. Frank went home for lunch like he did every day. He came back about one o'clock that afternoon and said, okay, let's do this. And so, you know, I don't know what happened in those four or five hours there for him. And it didn't matter. But I was forever grateful that as a team, we made that decision to honor what he needed at the time. And I think sometimes when as volunteers, you forget, you know, you're on a mission, you're there to get the job done. But nothing is more important than the people that you're there to help. Not always on your time. Yeah, great story. And that's that just, I guess, reinforces that whole mentality that really we're here to serve the community. And we volunteer for a number of reasons, but our motivation really at the end of the day is how do we help the community that we're part of? So yeah, that's a fantastic story to finish with. It's been great chatting with you both today. For anyone interested in learning more about CERT teams and the Joplin tornado, we've included photos and links on our blog at disasterbros.com. Thanks, Linda and Phil, for sharing your insights and joining us today on Me, Myself and Disaster. Hey, you're very welcome. Thanks, guys. Can't wait for you to come to the USA. Can't wait either. Yes, USA. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, how amazing is the work of Phil and Linda? For me, one of the key insights was that fact around how we always need to inform our stakeholders and the community in response. We're all in this together. We all have a Frank in our community and we need to keep those individuals on board. And I just found that really touching there in the end around how the CERT teams operated uh, in partnership with Frank and really operated on Frank's timeline rather than their timeline uh, in terms of how they needed to get the community back on its feet. Exactly, yeah. It's a good lesson for us all, I think, in that. And what I think I found was the really interesting bit about the notion that the spontaneous volunteers created a second disaster. And I think that's a result of just the surprise factor and having it on those those national media broadcasts certainly makes that a huge challenge. So I think it's a challenge for all of us to consider what will happen in these major events. How do we prepare for spontaneous volunteers or the community outpouring of support? And what can we really do to harness that when it happens and make it less of a problem, more of a a benefit for us that's it for another week join us next time for more disaster stories we'll catch you then thanks for listening to me myself and disaster subscribe today at me myself disaster.com learn more about disasters and follow our blog at disasterbros.com